Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Janis Joplin died at the age of 27, and she lived a life that often did not go as she had planned. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. One would be the number of Coke dealers who showed up on her doorstep at her house in Larkspur, seemingly out of a dream and altered the course of her life. Another one would be the number of roadhouses in Beaumont, Texas, where she would go to let off steam and get down to the sound of some boogie-woogie piano, only to find an ornery rock and roll legend looking to rumble. One more would be the number of psychedelic Porsches that she owned and that was stolen from her by a disgruntled fan in San Francisco while she played a show at the Winterland. And 24 would be the number of hours she had left to live after she left Sunset Sound Studio on a Saturday evening with something entirely more dangerous and self-destructive on her mind than making music, all totaling 27. On this, our 11th episode of season three, Coke Dealers, Roadhouse Rumbles, Psychedelic Porsches, and Janis Joplin walking a winding path to liberation. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
cowboy boots seemed like a smart place to hide the cocaine. The boots were tall, dark, so tall and so dark that you needed a flashlight to see if there was anything hiding on the inside. But no one did that. No one looked into a pair of cowboy boots with a flashlight. He figured it was cool. He needed to stash the coke for a day or two until he found a buyer. One of his regulars was out of town, another wasn't moving through the product as quickly as usual. No worries, he'd just sit on it for a few days. Deep in the boot, none of the random strangers or roommates passing through his place would be the wiser. Strangers, roommates, who could tell the difference anymore? It was 1970, and this was California. Life for Seth Morgan, the wayfaring drug dealer, was fast and loose. Strangers became friends, and friends became strangers, and sometimes the two became roommates, and oftentimes Seth would sleep with them. Whether they'd still be there the next morning, whether they lived there or not. He just couldn't have anyone rifling through the goods. He had to unload the stuff real soon in order to make sure the people above him got their payday so that he could keep the whole pipeline running smoothly. Not that he didn't have the cash to deal with a clogged pipeline, so to speak. He just didn't have the patience. But now the whole hide the coke in the cowboy boots game was looking like a bad plan. He came to that realization as he fished the baggie from the insole of his left boot. It was soggy. It had taken on the properties of the damp environment it had been hidden in for days. It was now a damp plastic bag with a pinkish white powder stuck inside, if you could call it powder. The stuff was so full of moisture at this point that it looked like baking soda laced with food coloring. Who the fuck was gonna buy damp pinkish Coke in a soggy plastic bag? Seth Morgan had been running drugs coast to coast. He'd hop on his Harley and transport the West Coast grass all the way out to the Big Apple. Then he'd return to San Francisco, a fresh batch of East Coast Coke loaded in his saddlebags. He was doing his part to keep both coasts turned on. But he didn't do it for the money. He had money. His trust fund was too large a month. He was an heir to a soap fortune, the son of a Park Avenue poet, a dabbler in anti-authoritarian boondoggles. He drank, he slept around. The more women at one time, the better. He pulled pranks, he rode with the angels. He had emotions to suppress, holes to fill. After his parents divorced when he was young, his mother drank herself to death. He was kicked out of prep schools in the US and abroad for behavioral problems. And then years later, his 21-year-old brother jumped off the Bay Bridge in San Francisco. Running dope coast to coast gave him a thrill. It put the wind in his hair and the past at his back. It kept his mind off the things he didn't want to think about. Because from a very young age, he didn't really have to think about anything. He was determined to keep it that way. Typically, running dope was a pretty chill gig. The East Coasters went B-A-N-A-N-A-S for some of that California green. And all the hippies in the Bay Area and down in the canyons of LA were discovering the high-octane thrill of New York's finest white waffle dust. But as Seth looked down at the sloppy pink goo at the bottom of his cowboy boot, he stressed. Stressed out to the max. It had been a while since he was stressed out to the max, and he wasn't a big fan of the feeling. It was a lot of blow. But his regulars weren't going to buy blow that looked like it had been sat on in the middle of a rainstorm. Janice Joplin will buy it, he was told. All he had to do was tool over to Marin County on his Harley, show up at the front door of Janis Joplin's house, tucked away on a cul-de-sac surrounded by redwood trees in Larkspur. She wasn't snooty when it came to drugs. Entitled? Hardly. Discerning? Not Janice. She'll buy it, they all told him. She'll try anything. So Seth tooled up the 101 from the bay to Larkspur, over the Golden Gate through Sausalito. 
And that's how he found himself at the end of a cul-de-sac surrounded by redwood trees in the Baltimore Canyon section of Larkspur, knocking on Janis Joplin's front door. It was May, 1970. When Janis answered, Seth cut right to the point. You Janis Joplin? He asked. Janis laughed, obviously. I heard you were always in search of a good time, Seth said, reaching into his pocket and pulling out the bag of soggy pinkish coke. He hoped that she wouldn't look at it too hard. Even better when I don't have to go searching for a good time and it just finds me instead, Janice replied. Seth smiled and something in his face rang Janice's bell. The look on her face changed suddenly. She was no longer pleasantly surprised by the appearance of a drug-toting stranger, but actively trying to figure out where she had seen him before. He was so familiar, she just couldn't put her finger on it. His thick mutton chops, sharp, hairy slabs that cut dangerous angles on the sides of his face. The jean jacket, sleeves bunched up to expose tattoos on his arms. On one arm, a sun. On the other arm, a scorpion. Hey man, Janice said, look on her face changing from one of bewilderment to one of slow motion recognition. Haven't I seen you before? Seth knew who she was, of course, had known about her all the way back to the summer of love when Big Brother and the Holding Company ruled the land like the kings and queen of the freaky West Coast scene. But he'd never met her, never been within a few feet, never exchanged glances or locked eyes. He told her this was a first. Janice looked over his shoulder and saw his Harley parked just a few feet away. It was painted gold, orange flames on the sides. Nah, man, Janice said, hesitating. Where have we met before? I'm having the weirdest deja vu right now. I know this isn't the first time I've seen you. Seth just shrugged his shoulders and hoped that she wouldn't notice the less than stellar quality of the sodden coke. Janice stood in the doorway, her mind flipping through months and years of memories, the memories that weren't yet worn down by all the handles of Soko and all the shots of heavy she put in her arm. She squinted her eyes tight, took in Seth's entire body as he stood there, waiting for her to hand off the cash so that then he could make a move on her and maybe, just maybe, get themselves immediately ensconced in the sack. She rattled through more memories, through the highways of Texas and the forests of California, through late nights crawling through the urban sprawl of Chicago and New York City, through the canyons of Los Angeles. She dug so deep that her eyes slightly rolled towards the back of her head. She dug deeper, and later that night, when the two were out at a Mexican restaurant in town getting to know each other, her digging through her mind paid off. She would remember Seth Morgan, right where she left him, in the recesses of her dreams. Slap to the face hurt like hell. But even more wounded than his sore red cheek was his pride. He'd just been slapped by a woman in his dressing room, backstage at his show, in front of his people. And who the hell was she? Janis Joplin? Some two-bit Bessie Smith wannabe? The muscleheads counting cash on the dressing room table stopped flipping bills so that they wouldn't miss what their boss would do next. They didn't call Jerry Lee Lewis the killer for nothing. And the killer didn't take flat palm bitch slaps from a 27-year-old so-called singer. 
Jerry Lee already didn't like Janis Joplin. He saw her coming that night, using her star power to push her way past the riffraff at the Pelican Club in Beaumont, Texas, in order to pay some respect to the real king of rock and roll, the Faraday phenom, the killer himself in the flesh. Janice had her kid sister with her, and her sister wanted to meet the killer. And so here they came, nudging past the two muscle heads in the dressing room for a handshake or an autograph, or maybe even a kiss on the cheek. Jerry Lee muttered a collection of poorly strung together curse words under his breath when he saw her coming. He'd first met her that past summer at a show in Louisville, Kentucky. He was co-headlining with the possum, George Jones. Jerry Lee was playing shows with one of the biggest names in country music because he had been reinvented as a country singer himself. This was 1970, which was well after Jerry Lee scandalized the world by marrying his 13-year-old cousin. A defiant move that excommunicated him from the world of rock and roll, the very world he'd helped to manufacture in a tiny room in Memphis. He was lost, seemingly without a career or an audience, while the charlatan Elvis Presley served in the army and returned to become a bona fide movie star. So Smash Records fired off a Hail Mary and recast Jerry Lee Lewis as a country crooner. He entered into a world dominated by the likes of Merle Haggard and Glenn Campbell. His repertoire shifted from signature songs like Great Balls of Fire and Whole Lot of Shaking Going On to She Woke Me Up to Say Goodbye and What Made Milwaukee Famous Has Made a Loser Out of Me. Janice happened to be passing through Louisville that night on tour with the Full Tilt Boogie Band and they had a night off, so she got tickets and went to the show. But she discovered that someone else besides the killer or the possum was holding her attention. Throughout the whole show, Janice had her eyes on Jerry Lee's bass player. She thought the boy was F-I-N-E fine, and when she made a pass at him after the show, she discovered that not only was he only 17, he was also Jerry Lee's son. You could have cut a big old hunk of Louisiana brisket with the look the killer flung in Janice's general direction that night. Now you could call bullshit on the killer since here's a man who would happily marry his 13-year-old cousin, and then he goes the double standard route when the tables are turned. But the idea of Janice Joplin making eyes at his son just didn't sit right with him. And even though she apologized and then made a joke about it, Jerry Lee's mind was already made up. Janice Joplin could go and fuck right off. So later, backstage at the Pelican Club on a hot night in late summer, he was ready to tell her that same thing again. He went for a low blow and made some snarky macho comment about how Janice and her sister Laura were dressed and smelled. And whatever the killer said, it set Janice off. You motherfucker, she yelled. And that's when she wound up and planted a man-sized slap across Jerry Lee's face. Janice wasn't above slapping the shit out of a man. Just ask Jim Morrison. Jerry Lee massaged his face while his posse stood by, shocked into silence. You want to act like a man? Jerry Lee asked, nodding his head and adjusting his jaw. If you're going to act like a man, I'll treat you like one. Then, Jerry Lee Lewis punched Janice Joplin in the mouth. And that wasn't at all how Janice had imagined the evening would go. They had come to the Pelican Club to escape this kind of bullshit. She needed the release of a hot, raucous roadhouse, a beer joint with some boogie-woogie piano, where she could yell and sweat and dance until she had forgotten about everything else. It was the end of the summer in 1970, and Janice needed the therapy of the roadhouse to sweep Port Arthur under the carpet. She had returned to her Texas hometown for a specific reason, her 10th high school reunion. Janice didn't think about high school all that much, but when she did, 
all the old feelings of rejection came flooding back. She thought about the squares who called her a freak, about the jocks who called her a slut. She thought about the strict confines of life in an oil town with her parents, Seth and Dorothy. Port Arthur was stifling, it was suffocating. Janice was never able to be herself in that Texas town. And it wasn't until she moved away, hit the road running and barely looked back that she caught a glimpse of what liberation looked like. Liberation looked like San Francisco. Liberation looked like Golden Gate Park and the diggers rallying through the streets. Liberation looked like Jay Whitaker leaning up against the bar of the anxious asp. And liberation looked like Bill Graham eating crow and welcoming her with open arms as she played to a capacity crowd at the Fillmore. Liberation looked like Big Brother and the Holding Company and the Cosmic Blues Band and the Full Tilt Boogie Band. Liberation looked like Sam Andrew and Albert Grossman and Bob Newworth and Chris Christopherson. It looked like Pigpen, the soul of the dead, and just like Janice, an old soul always in search of a good time and a liberating release. Life outside Port Arthur wasn't without its challenges, and that was for damn sure, whether it was speed or meth or heroin. But those were Janice's choices, not the choices of the people back home who told her what to do or who to be. She never hesitated to tell anyone how she felt about where she came from. She would say that her classmates at Jefferson High School laughed her out of class, out of town, and right out of Texas. She said exactly that to Dick Cavett in the entire country by default when she was a guest on his television talk show just months before her high school reunion. When Cavett asked her if she'd been back home to Port Arthur, she announced that she was headed back for the first time in a long time later that summer. And this time was different from the rest. This time, she couldn't wait to get back. She would turn the tables on everyone back home this time. She wouldn't be the rejected one. She would cross the city line into Port Arthur and stroll through the front doors of Jefferson High as one of the biggest rock and roll singers on the planet. And the whole damn school would see how wrong they were about her. It didn't exactly go as planned. At the reunion, Janice stuck out like a blues riff in a Haydn symphony. It wasn't just the feather boas in her hair, colored purple, magenta, and green or the legion of bracelets that ran up her right arm, or the local TV reporters with the cameras and lights who followed her around. She worked the room like it was a pool party at Peter Tork's Laurel Canyon house, but the room just didn't want to be worked. Janice's classmates didn't like her back in high school, and they didn't like her now either, especially rocking that dismissive holier-than-thou rock and roller pose. No, her triumphant return to high school did not go at all how she had planned. And neither did the night at the Pelican Club with Jerry Lee Lewis. Some days, it seemed like absolutely nothing was going her way. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. 
Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily to die for is available now listen for free on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts the porsche tore up the pacific coast highway it headed north away from los angeles to the right the hills above malibu To the left, a straight drop into the big blue. The sky was dark and the stars were out. 
and being this far outside the city meant you could actually make out some of the constellations if the conditions were favorable. And the road was mostly deserted at such a late hour. And the Porsche's headlights illuminated the upcoming twists and turns, the ones that made the PCH famous and made driving on the PCH such a roller coaster thrill ride. As it came to a dramatic corner, the Porsche slowed down to hug the edge of the road, and then the engine opened up to take on the long stretch of pavement on the flip side. 35 miles per hour, 45 miles per hour, 60, 70. As the next turn came in hot, the Porsche's driver, Janice Joplin, cackled with a daredevil's glee and downshifted hard. One foot hit the clutch, the other hit the brake, and she was safely around the corner and onto the next straightaway. She looked in her rearview mirror and didn't see anything, and the salt air was cold and wet on her face. The long feather boas tied to her hair flapped behind her like exhaust from the tailpipe. Then she saw the high beam flash on and off in her rearview mirror. She heard the other car's engine rev from behind, and then suddenly it was right next to her, in the opposite lane but going in the same direction she was going in. Paul Rothschild had finally caught up to her. He told her he would. Janice looked over to her left, and Rothschild was in the driver's seat of his Porsche, running up the straightaway with Janice neck and neck. He laughed and waved. Up the road, an oncoming car, not running nearly as fast as Janice and Rothschild, but nonetheless, Rothschild had to move. He slammed his foot down on the clutch and downshifted his Porsche falling in behind Janice's. It was a game they played, after hours, after a solid day of recording Janice's new album, Pearl, at Sunset Sound Studio. Janice and Rothschild would take their respective Porsches and race them up and down the PCH. Janice's Porsche was a car unlike any other, truly. When she bought the 356C Cabriolet in 1968, it was used. It was already three years old. For a cool 3,500 bucks, it was a lot cheaper than the fancier cars other rock stars and celebrities were slapping down money for. But it was plain gray, dolphin gray to be precise, was the factory color. It was boring. It didn't scream Janice, and it needed to scream Janice. The convertible had to be a visual representation of Janice's style. So she threw 500 bucks at one of her roadies, Dave Richards, and told him to give the car a psychedelic paint job. It took Richards a month to complete it, and the finished product was a mural that Roberts called the History of the Universe, and which covered the entire body of the Porsche in eye-popping day-glow glory. The mural used every color in Richards' arsenal and included butterflies, California landscapes, skulls, mushroom stars, the moon, the eye of God, Janice's astrological symbol, Capricorn, and even a portrait of Big Brother and the holding company thrown in for good measure. He topped it all off with a layer of clear coat. You couldn't miss the Porsche around San Francisco and Los Angeles. Everyone knew it was Janice coming or going. It was so well known that Janice would find letters from fans, bottles of SoCo and Scotch whiskey left on the hood or windshield while it was parked. The thief who stole her Porsche off the street outside the Winterland in San Francisco in 1969 knew exactly who it belonged to. It was Janice's car. Be cool, his friends told him. Be cool and don't steal Janice Joplin's fucking car, man. Come on. The thief thought otherwise. Janice was the one-time siren of the Haight-Ashbury scene. But now, the thief thought, she had compromised the values that she had once stood for. She was all about the money and the fame. She was about Los Angeles. She'd forgotten about San Francisco. She bought a Porsche with her money. She didn't care about the people. She didn't sing for the people anymore. 
So he hopped inside the psychedelic convertible, popped off the panel under the steering column, and pulled out the wiring. A cut here, a strip there, bring these two wires together, a spark, a rumble, and then the Porsche purred to life. As he drove through the streets of San Francisco, people on the sidewalk pointed at the Porsche. Looks of recognition turned into faces of confusion. It was Janice's car, though that most certainly wasn't Janice driving it. Who the fuck was driving Janice's 356 around town? And why did he not look like he belonged in the driver's seat? The thief quickly realized that his spur-of-the-moment Grand Theft Auto was a little more high-profile than he initially thought. Janice reported the car missing after her show at the Winterland, and the heat was on. It was the most recognizable car in town. The thief's stomach leapt into his throat when he realized it would only be a matter of time before the San Francisco Police Department was all over him. But when the Porsche was found, not long after it was stolen, the thief had begun to spray paint it gray in order to mask its unique mural. Luckily, the clear coat that Dave Richards had applied over the mural made for an easy cleanup and restoration. Janice didn't press charges. Back in Los Angeles in 1970, Janice pressed on the gas pedal to put a little pep in the step of her Porsche 356C. She rolled into the parking lot of Sunset Sound, sheltered by palm trees. Inside, she found Paul Rothschild alone. She had Porsches on the brain, and a melody she'd been humming to herself on the drive over. She didn't need the band. She'd do it alone. I'd like to do a song of great social and political import, she said into the microphone, and then tape rolling began to sing. She ended her acapella take of Mercedes-Benz and said, that's it. Rothschild killed the tape. Her voice, ravaged by years of drinking and drugging and touring, was electrifyingly naked and perfectly fit the winking bluesy lyric. Rothschild asked Janice if she wanted to go race Porsches up PCH. There was no rain that night and the conditions were perfect. You can race me if you can catch me, she responded, and she was off. Rothschild had to hustle. He gunned his Porsche to the winding coastal highway, turned on his high beams, only to realize that Janice had disappeared into the night. Sunday, October 4th, 1970. Paul Rothschild checked the clock on the wall at Sunset Studio again. It read quarter to six. In the evening, Pacific Standard Time. Still, no Janice. He looked through the window of the studio's control booth. The full-tilt boogie band were locked and loaded, and running through some rudimentary jams just to kill time. When their singer and leader decided to show up, and they'd get down to business and keep making this new record. The new record was going to be called Pearl. It was named after the nickname that Janice had given herself, the name she wanted to be called by those who were really close to her, her friends and bandmates. Pearl would be the real Janice, not the stage Janice. Rothschild looked at the clock on the wall another time. It was like watching water boil. The long hand had moved ahead one minute, but it had felt like an hour. No one wanted to get down to business more than Rothschild. They'd all been waiting for so long for Janice, all Sunday afternoon, in fact, that at this point, Rothschild's frustration had evolved into true concern. Concern for Pearl, for the real Janice. During the Pearl sessions, Janice was a creature of habit. 
She could either be found at one of three places, Sunset Sound, Barney's Beanery, or her hotel room, room 105 at the Landmark Motor Hotel. She typically didn't slide onto a stool at Barney's until late night, so by process of elimination, Rothschild assumed she was in her hotel room, probably still sleeping off the night before. Shit, she was probably still sleeping off that morning. Rothschild told the band to take five and picked up the phone near the studio's custom-built tube console. He called John Cook. Cook was Janice's road manager, an Albert Grossman hire, former roommate of Bob Newirth, part of the team since 67. If anyone knew where Janice was, it was Cook. Rothschild got him on the phone, told him Janice was late to the session. Not just a little late, but late late. Rothschild said he'd been calling her hotel room all afternoon with no luck, no dice, no Janice. Cook was on it. He told Rothschild not to worry. Cook hung up and then dialed the number for the landmark. He asked for room 105. He listened to the phone on the other end of the line ring and ring and ring some more, but no one picked up. Cook hung up the receiver. He grabbed the keys to his Volvo. He'd just head over to the landmark and wake Janice up. It was the kind of responsibility that came with the gig. He'd done his fair share of shaking Janice Joplin awake. As he was about to head out the door, the phone rang again. And this time, it was Seth Morgan, the hog-riding dealer who Janice had been getting real intimate with. Cook didn't know the guy from a hole in the wall. In fact, no one did, but he seemed all right. If Janice was cool with him, then everyone else would be too. Seth told Cook that Janice was supposed to pick him up at the airport later that night, but that she wasn't answering her phone. A shudder went up Cook's back. He hadn't felt any unusual concern over Rothschild's initial call, but now the anxiety was setting in. Something was wrong. Cook couldn't say what it was, but it kept running up his back like an uncontrollable spasm. He told Seth he was on his way over to the Landmark. And the Landmark Motor Hotel was a crazy little joint on Franklin Avenue, just north of Hollywood Boulevard, near the Magic Castle. It has since been rebranded as the Highland Gardens Hotel, Janice and the entire band had taken advantage of its cheap weekly rates and moved into separate rooms while they were in town making Pearl. Parties at the Landmark weren't the exception. They were the rule. It wasn't out of the ordinary to come back to the hotel late night and find Jimi Hendrix or the Chambers Brothers taking a dip in the swimming pool. A guest once called the front desk to complain about the members of Jefferson Airplane partying too loud in their room, and the guest who called to complain was the one who got kicked out of the hotel. The airplane partied on. But there was no partying going on when Cook pulled up to the hotel. He noticed Janice's Porsche parked outside and saw a light on in the window of her room. First, he knocked at her door. Nothing. He knocked again. Still nothing. Cook put his hand on the doorknob and opened the door of room 105. At first, he didn't see anything amiss. It was quiet. And the only noise was the din of nonstop traffic out on Franklin. And then he noticed that the sheets from the bed had been pulled down to one side. His eyes traced the sheets to the floor. A pair of feet stuck out from the end of the bed on the floor. It was a body, face down, lifeless, sandwiched in between the bed and the nightstand. Cook's eyes opened up, and there was blood on the nightstand, blood on some of the sheets that had been pulled to the floor. Cook stood in silence, shocked, his hands still on the doorknob, his throat knotted up. He didn't want to believe that it was her. He knew it was her, but he wasn't ready to believe it. He stood in the doorway, his breathing so heavy and so labored now that he felt like his lungs were balloons that could pop at any minute. And suddenly the phone on the nightstand rang. It was shrill. It called out to Cook. 
Cook snapped out of his shock and took a few steps inside the room. The phone kept ringing. He walked towards the body on the floor, stuck between the bed and the nightstand, and got a good look. He confirmed that it was a woman. Her hand was clutched tight around a few dollar bills, a pack of Marlboro Reds next to her. Cook knew exactly what he was looking at, but he refused to believe it. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. Alright, this episode of The 27 Club is brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I also host. Disgraceland is available only on the free Amazon Music app. To hear tons of insane stories about your favorite musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, Nirvana, Prince, Jerry Lee Lewis, The Grateful Dead, The Rolling Stones, Cardi B, and many, many more, go to amazon.com slash disgraceland. Or if you have an Echo device, just say, hey Alexa, play the Disgraceland podcast. The 27 Club is hosted and co-written by me, Jake Brennan. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. Matt Bowden mixes the show. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Our previous seasons on Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison are available for you to binge right now wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to find and follow The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media. And we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about the 27 Club. You can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock a roller. What's up for your ears? Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, 
host of To Live and Die in L.A. And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.